Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast. I'm Amber Bowen, and today we're discussing women in the academy. In what ways does the academy uniquely benefit from having faculty members, administrators, and of course, students who are women? What is it like being a woman in the academy? And what are some unique challenges that women face in the academy? So today with me to talk about this are two very special guests, Dr. Krista McCurland. Hi, Dr. McCurland, how's it going? Hey, great, Amber, so good to see you. Thanks for having me. And Dr. Jill Firth. Dr. Firth, how are you doing today? Um, it's great. Yeah, good to, good to talk to you. So I want to start off by getting to know you both a little bit and introducing you to our, our audience here. Dr. McCurland, can you tell me a bit about your educational background and what led you to where you find yourself right now? Absolutely, Amber. Um, yes, yeah, so I was born in Georgia. I am a Southern Belle uh, by birth. I was actually born in Georgia Baptist Hospital, so I'm also Baptist by birth, <laughs> uh, one could say. Um, and I was raised in the Southern Baptist tradition. My dad's um, a, still a minister in a Southern Baptist megachurch. My mom just retired as an attorney, um, and I just had very strong role modeling from them um, of what a vibrant faith in Christ looks like. And even though our cultural paradigms really didn't have many spaces for women uh, to lead, especially in a spiritual context, they were still so centered really on what the spirit might be doing that they said, Krista, whatever God calls you to do, that's what mm. you do. It really doesn't matter even if we agree with it. That's mm. what you do. That's the voice that needs to be the guiding force in your life. And so um, I ended up going to the University of Georgia, uh, where I studied philosophy and women's studies. And then I ended up from there, met and married my husband, Matt, um, who was awesome. And we ended up moving to California to go to Talbot School of Theology, um, which is part of Biola University. And that's where I did my first master's degree in biblical exposition, really to get more of a bearing on Greek and Hebrew. It is a slight bearing <laughs> compared to Jill, <laughs> especially. Um, but I wanted to actually, in order to better understand some of the passages on gender uh, in scripture, I felt like I needed to really get at the ancient languages um, since mm. so much of it seemed to actually come back to translation. Uh, mm -hmm. That was significant. And then cultural context as well. Um, and then I did my second master's called a THM, uh, Master's of Theology, and it was in systematic theology. And then those three disciplines um, really set me up to enter into the interdisciplinary project at the Logos Institute in St. Andrews, where they were bringing together those three disciplines, philosophy, biblical studies, and systematic theology. And so I am a, uh, a what is it, a jackie of all trades and a master <laughs> of none. Uh, so I, I very much feel that in interdisciplinary conversation, but that's where I did my doctorate uh, in analytic and exegetical theology uh, and really just fell in love with that method and the folks um, that supported me there. And I know that'll come mm -hmm. up more in the course of our conversation. Yeah, of course. And tell me a little bit about where you find yourself now. Yeah, so in going on the job market, which is harrowing, uh, especially in education, higher education, and then add in liberal arts, and then add in theology, uh, mm -hmm. and then add in Christian theology, it just gets narrower and narrower of mm -hmm. where I actually could even apply, especially looking for schools that would um, be well-suited, that we'd be a good fit for one another, 
so often in America um, that if, if I was teaching in a more religious studies context, it would be very affirming of me as a woman, mm -hmm. but I would have a harder time um, teaching where I come from is more of a hypothetical. Uh, mm -hmm. That would have been harder to engage my faith in, in a robust way. And I've always wanted to help equip equippers. Um, that's mm -hmm. just been part of my calling since I was a little girl. Um, so that, uh, that form of the academy felt like it was going to be difficult for me to enter into. But then when it came to seminaries, um, or Christian institutions, then there are all kinds of doctrinal issues, uh, specifically mm -hmm. related to whether or not women could teach. And then even if women could teach, what views could they hold? And so the fear of constantly self-surveilling, mm -hmm. um, was quite present for me. And so I did look at some institutions in the States and it applied at four of those, um, after I'd gotten my doctorate and didn't get a single bite. And so that was quite telling for me. Mm. Um, and we loved our time at St. Andrews and, and were interested in staying on there. Um, but in looking at across really the world and especially in English speaking countries, um, we came across this school in New Zealand and had only heard amazing things from my supervisor, Alan Torrance about New Zealand. And then one of our dearest friends um, in St. Andrews is from Australia. And so she could vouch for this hemisphere, at least anecdotally. <laughs> so um, we started looking in earnest um, when Carrie Baptist College came on the radar. And it just ticked all of my heart's boxes and Matt's heart's boxes when it came to relational pedagogy, Christ-centered focus, uh, a high, high view of scripture, um, and, and then a real concern for the local church. Because a lot of what we are doing here is equipping, uh, especially Baptist, to be ministers and then other church denominations as well. So it's pretty ecumenical in that regard too. And then the beauty of New Zealand, it was the first country to give women the right to vote. And mm -hmm. so they are very concerned about gender equality. There is still a gap, a recognizable gap between theory and practice when it comes to church leadership. And that was something else that Carrie hired me, uh, believing that I could not only teach systematic theology well, but I could also help encourage the next generation of women scholars and church leaders. So helping bring that theory into practice and close the gap when it comes mm. to church leadership. That's so encouraging, especially the way that God provides places for us and places that were probably the unexpected places, and yet they wind up being the most perfect places for us. So I'm so excited that he's done that for you and excited about your, your work there and the way that you're able to be a model for these women. Um, I remember the first time that I saw and heard a Christian female philosopher give a presentation. And I don't think I heard anything that she said because I was just so enamored with that's what it looks like. And that's what I kept saying to myself all the time. That's what it looks like to be a woman who is a really, really good philosopher who built up the church. <laughs> um, I knew that that existed hypothetically, but to see it in the flesh was a really big deal for me. Uh, and I would say another one of these people who is that kind of model figure for me personally is also here with us today, who's Dr. Jill Firth. So I'm so glad that she's here. Um, Dr. Firth is very much a model for many women in the academy and the way that she exemplifies a rigorous scholarship and such a gracious presence. And so, Dr. Firth, would you tell me a little bit about your background? Yes, yeah, so um, I'm a little bit opposite to Krista. I uh, was born to an atheist and an agnostic parent. Uh, we never mm -hmm. prayed. 
um, they did let us have Bible storybooks and answered questions about God, which I now find quite incredible how graciously they spoke of, you know, well, people believe and stuff like that. Um, they were um, pretty egalitarian. So I, my home experience was, you know, women can do whatever. My father put aside the same amount of money for our education as for my brother's education. There was never any question of women dishwashing while men saved the world. Mm. Um, my mother, my mother um, had been a teacher, but she um, became an honorary probation officer in, you know, when I was growing up, she was always working with women um, in need. Um, she didn't need the money to have a real job because my father made plenty of money. So she just did whatever she liked, which was um, on reprobation officer work. So I grew up um, thinking I could do whatever. Mm. And um, my, I became a Christian when I was about 12. And then I, you know, in, in my teenage years, thought about different ways of serving God. And I got involved with a, um, like a, an open house in the in the suburbs, which was it was actually really amazing work. It was just women living in the house, but they were reaching out to little boy prostitutes on the streets, mm. um, giving them meals and caring for them. And I thought, this is what I want to do uh, with mm. my life. Um, I, so I actually went to Ridley College, where I'm now lecturing, uh, to ask, could I come and study there? And they said, oh no, you're too young. Um, go away and do something else and come back. Uh, when you're a bit older. So I was 18 then. Um, so I enrolled at university um, to do a social work degree. And um, during that first year, I actually met the person who's now my husband. Uh, and he was from another state where they didn't have an Anglican theological college. Um, so I moved there and you know got mixed up in continuing my study. And then we went to the country to a remote place and I had kids. And then we came back and I still was having little kids. And then <laughs> I, was, I finished my uni degree, but I was still having little kids. And then I thought, oh, well, you know, when the last one goes to school, that'll be my time. But that's when we went as um, missionary workers to Hong Kong during the years when um, Hong Kong was being handed back to China. So it was mm. very intense ministry, prayer, you know, working with Christians. Um, so that wasn't a time for study for me. But when I came back to Australia in 2000, I thought, this is my time. Uh, so I um, went back to Ridley. I thought they can't say I'm too young. They might say I'm too old. Um, and I um, enrolled there. And um, so I completed an MDiv. And then at the same time, I was doing a Master of Arts in Spiritual Direction at another institution. Mm. And then uh, I did some other grad dips that I won't you know, interfere with. And then I uh, did PhD in Old Testament in the Psalms. You both... Uh exemplify an interdisciplinary approach to your scholarship. And I think your life experiences, just even hearing your stories now and what I know about you personally, uh, you have such a range of life experiences, everything from being mothers to being academics, to being involved in ministry, to attending big conferences and things like that. Um, and a, a variety of interests in, in different ways, the theoretical and the practical, et cetera. Um, in what ways do you think that that enriches your scholarship and I would say enrich you as a scholar? Yeah, so at the beginning, it seemed like all handicaps, you know, like I was 25 years behind or probably not 25 mm -hmm. years because people don't start till they're like 30 and I was trying to start at 18, but I was a good more than a decade, perhaps a couple of decades behind my peers. 
and I was a bit annoyed about that for some time. Um, but I was just thinking yesterday, actually, in preparation for this uh, about that, that where scholarship is in Old Testament now, um, like literary approaches to the text, you know, canonical readings and so on, this is where my heart is and where my skill is. You know, in, at uni, I was doing literature studies, so this is what I know. Because if I'd gone when I was young, I would have had all this stupid other stuff that, you know, I wouldn't have enjoyed. So that's kind of enjoyable to me that this is God's time. Like for, um, for Krista, it's God's place. But for me, this is God's time. Mm. Uh, when, I, when, when I was um, studying, so I finished the MDiv and I, I was applying for the PhD or perhaps had started the PhD and I, I was doing a lot of work in my own spiritual direction stuff. And I was saying to God, look, this is too hard. You know, I'm trying to do this ministry because I was ordained as an Anglican priest in that time as well, doing this ministry, trying to study this PhD um, and, you know, other stuff. And I, I had the sense that he said, you've got to keep carrying these. Don't put any of them down. And I'm like, you've got to be insane. You know, I can't, I can't <laughs> be spiritually directing people and working in the parish and doing the PhD. It's just too hard. Um, so I worked out a way of kind of still staying alive. But now I'm so excited because mm -hmm. I can see how God pulled together the spiritual direction stuff, the academic stuff and the ministry stuff in a way that is just so fantastic mm -hmm. that I would have gone on one because I'm a kind of narrow-minded one, one thing person, uh, but he made me hold them all together and I can see my academic work now is so enriched by these different strands, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's really beautiful. And Krista, how about you? How have you seen these things enrich? you as a scholar and your scholarship. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, even my trajectory of wanting to go into academia was very motivated by what I didn't see in the local church. Mm -hmm. So growing up in a megachurch Southern Baptist world, I didn't see women up front. I didn't see women preaching. I didn't see women teaching. I didn't see women praying. I didn't see women baptizing, serving the Lord's Supper, passing an offering plate. I didn't mm -hmm. see women in any of those roles. And so for me, and I've said this before uh, in other interview contexts, um, there's my mom ran across a devotional journal of mine from when I was nine years old. And one of the texts that you were supposed to work through as a little kid uh, was the feeding of the 5,000. And it goes through the whole story of what Jesus did. And then at the end it says, and Jesus fed 5,000. And it has a parentheses, not including the women and children. <laughs> and so my little nine year old, brain wrote with my nine-year-old hand, where are the women and children? Like in mm. the margin, my nine-year-old self wondered about their invisibility and therefore about my invisibility. And then that was reiterated in what I would see in a church context. And so when I really felt a strong calling to be teaching and preaching as a 19-year-old, I then had to grapple with what do I do with these texts? that seem mm -hmm. to say I can't. And here I have a spirit who is gifting me in a way that says I can. And it didn't make sense to me logically. And I was also starting philosophy and the intro to logic course is what hooked me on that whole degree. Mm -hmm. It was asking the question, okay, if, it, if it's beneficial for all, why should it be sequestered to some? Mm -hmm. It just didn't make sense. And so at the same time, I wanted to be faithful to my beliefs. And so that's what drove me to want to do a master's degree in biblical exposition, 
was the ecclesiological, the practical impetus. And then secondly, because I was pretty confident my denomination wouldn't change, or at least mm -hmm. might not in my lifetime, the second thought was, well, if I can't influence people from the pulpit, I'll, inf I'll influence them from the classroom. Mm. I will speak a different way of thinking in that context. And maybe those people will either be pastors or they'll at least be congregants. Right. And if we believe in the priesthood of all believers, maybe they'll actually be listened to. And we could have more of a critical mass looking at these things and asking critical questions and thinking through cultural context and all of those things that are related in, in higher education in divinity and saying, well, how does this affect my daily life? So mm -hmm. for me, the, the academic and the pastoral always go hand in hand. And I think some of our best theologians, I mean, you look in church history, right? I mean, when we've got these great thinkers, they're often writing their sermons. That's right. We're getting their theology from their sermons. It's mm -hmm. much more a modern shift that we have people doing theology in abstraction mm -hmm. and not being involved in the local church. And maybe this is going too far for this podcast, but I think <laughs> this is why we are having so many issues with people not recognizing why we need to care about things like race and gender mm. because we've done theology as disembodied beings, which you can't do by the way, but we think we've done that. And so we have this massive disconnect between life and the academy. And that is something we desperately need to bridge. And honestly, I think to one of your other questions, I think you've already alluded to, women can bring that into this space, I think, far more naturally. Not because women are essentially more embodied. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you this, women do typically know their bodies and know that they have bodies far more than men do because of what we've done societally to reinforce that women are our bodies. And in fact, that's all that we are. So we can't escape embodiment. And frankly, we shouldn't want to, mm. but we need new schemas that can mm. value bodies. And Christianity as a whole faith tradition, it actually does that. Not specific thinkers, but when we talk about creation, we talk about resurrection, incarnation, new creation, it's all material. As one of the thinkers here says, matter matters. <laughs> and so that's something I think we, it's going to color everything that we do. And women, I think, are just primed to speak into this conversation really out of necessity more than mm -hmm. anything else. But I think we can also do it really well. Yeah, it's like we have certain sensibilities and a certain attunement um, that brings that to the table and it brings that in, uh, intensified awareness of embodiment to the table that is very enriching of the conversation. Um, I was thinking when you both were talking, um, Kierkegaard has this great, well, actually it's a, a pseudonym, Anticlimacus has this great preface to one of his writings, Sickness Unto Death, where he talks about how everything in the Christian life should serve for upbuilding and edification. And so even rigorous scholarship uh, should serve for the purpose of upbuilding and edification. And he goes on to describe what that means. And, and he, he says that uh, it should be done like a doctor working at a sickbed. And what's remarkable about the doctor at the sickbed is 
the doctor is a professional. The doctor is speaking in terms and participating in the discourse appropriate to her profession. And she is qualified and has all the licensures and everything, all this years of schooling and practice. But she's not doing her work from an isolated remote laboratory somewhere. She's doing her work in the presence of a person who is sick in the bed right in front of her. Uh, and she's doing it from a place of embodied presence herself. So he says, if the following deliberation is too rigorous to be upbuilding, I would consider that a fault. Um, but hopefully it's not too upbuilding to be rigorous or something to that effect. Um, uh, actually, he says, I wouldn't consider that as much of a fault as the other way around would be a fault. And uh, so I, I found that to be such a powerful, I actually have some lines from that text beside my computer when I write um, to think, okay, are you being so rigorous that you're, you've lost touch <laughs> with reality and you're no longer able to upbuild your readers in the various ways that we upbuild readers um, and always remembering to do scholarship from an, a point of embodied presence and with an aim to heal and restore and unfurl new possibilities. Uh, so I, I love that you guys uh, do that so much in your work. And I'm wondering, though, um, what have been, you've already mentioned some challenges just in terms of carrying heavy loads and doing lots of different things. But have there been any unique challenges for you in the academy as you've gone through this very long journey <laughs> from the point of calling uh, all the way to the point of finishing your PhD and beginning this vocation in the academy, what, what are just some particular challenges that you face and how has God provided for those challenges and sustained you through them? Yeah, Amber, that's interesting that you asked that because Logia, uh, which um, I was privileged to start in 2017 and which Jill is a, an advisory board member for that organization, that really came out of this question of challenge. And so, as I've mentioned, Alan Torrance, uh, was my supervisor um, at the University of St. Andrews. And when we're bringing three disciplines together, such as biblical studies, analytic philosophy, and systematic theology, the paucity of women in any one of those disciplines is staggering. But then you bring it all three together, and it's like, what? Where are the women? And so Alan was quite concerned about that. And he was concerned about it before the Logos Institute was a thing. But then when I came on board and had already done something at a prior school, related to starting a grassroots organization that was trying to provide a safe space for students to entertain uh, alternative interpretation to those gender uh, specific passages, or mm -hmm. they seem to be gender specific um, or gender exclusive, uh, but trying to give another space for um, just some exegetical reasoning. I had that in my toolkit really, or as they say here in New Zealand, in my kete, my basket, um, something I could bring to Logos. Um, and so Alan and I just put our heads together and said, what could we do about this? Um, and Andrew was a part of that conversation too. And basically said, let's, we have something great going here at the University of St. Andrews. What if we were to try to support women in theology, especially, because it is interesting, even in biblical studies and philosophy, more women, even though it's bad, there are still more women in those two disciplines than in theology. Theology has just been a holdout discipline um, historically. And so the question was, what could we do to really be a game changer here? And in the academy, 
but also with a heart for um, seeing the church changed in this way as well. Because believing that postgraduate divinity education would actually benefit everyone, if you're in the academy or in the church, um, because of the priesthood of all believers, really, uh, trying to have more equipped priests in those mm. callings. So that the challenge of, okay, we don't have enough women, what do we do about that? And so our twofold purpose, uh, really, with everything we do, is one, to highlight the excellence of women who are already just rocking it. So Jill being one of those examples. Um, and so, for instance, we have a database online that has over 500 scholars, 500 women scholars across the divinity disciplines. We're working on making that more searchable and user-friendly, but at least you have a list right now on Logia's website. So that's one way of highlighting excellence. We also have a blog that we run every month just to get women's voices out there. But the other big thing we want to do is develop excellence. So how do we help this next generation of women be what they can see, which you've already mentioned, and that's Logia's tagline, is you can be what you can see. Mm -hmm. So how do we get more role models? Um, and even if we don't have women faculty at different institutions, what are, what's the course syllabus? Where are the women uh, on the reading lists? Where are the women in the primary texts? Okay, sure, you can't find a systematic theology that you want to use for that level of coursework. How could you integrate that into the assessments? Because now having my very first semester of teaching under my belt, I found that the primary course reading really isn't <laughs> the main thing students are engaging with. But I'll hmm. tell you what, they sure do care about their assessments. So what are creative ways I could bring different voices? And this means not only decentering the typical male voices, not because they're bad, but because they're only one way of viewing the world. So how can I maybe supplement the, the male reading that we have through the text uh, for the primary text? And then for my assessments, let's bring in some womanist theologians, some feminist theologians. Let's do some black liberation theology or some Hispanic liberation theology. Let's expose students to different perspectives and decenter Western epistemology as the only way to think about things. So the challenges, I think, one is it's numerical, but then also trying to get women, even if they're at the table, there was an excellent article just done at a Brigham Young University, basically giving stats on even having women at the table, it's not enough because our sociological dynamics, women will yeah. still speak less than the men in the room. And it doesn't matter if it's only one man at the table and the rest are women. Yeah. He will just speak more. And it's not, it's not to shame him, but that's what he grew up. He grew up learning to do that. And, and women are not going to typically assert opinions and be as confident, even if they are more competent than the men at the table. And so this article even talked about one practical takeaway is instead of doing things, and this actually applies even to church contexts and church boards, but it could also go in the academic realm. Instead of doing um, different decision-making by majority, which still actually prioritizes the dominant voices at the table, which trend at the male end, actually make decisions by unanimous vote. Mm. And it immediately flattens the power dynamic. And women then actually start speaking up more at the table. So our challenges are many. And, and the biggest one to me is that excellence is not enough. Mm. So we actually need active interventions. And so that's where Logia is actually trying to do that strategically 
and Jill and I and others on our board and our leaders in St. Andrews are constantly putting our heads together to say, how can we intervene at strategic junctures? So we're yeah. highlighting women's excellence, developing women's excellence, and helping really whole institutions change for the better. Mm. You know, one of my favorite teaching techniques um, in the classroom is actually, you know, when you break students up into small groups and you give them different topics to discuss, and then maybe at the end you have like a representative from each group that shares some general consent, like a general consensus or some thoughts that maybe arose from the discussion. Um, what happens a lot is people love to share their own thoughts that emerged from the discussion that they had. Um, and what I really love to do is to tell people, okay, students, we're, we're now going to discuss things that emerged in your individual group discussions, but instead of sharing an insight that you had during the discussion, share an insight that someone else had in your group. And it's such an amazing practice because it changes the whole orientation of the discussion that now you're not using this as your 30 seconds of fame to <laughs> tell people your great idea, which is, is great and important and there needs to be space for people to share those things. But you're learning an additional skill, which is how do you defer to someone else or how do you shine light on someone else or how do you say, hey, this person had a really great thought. And I want to tell you what, what they said. And it, it kind of also helps because as they repeat it, then that person is there to say, well, no, not exactly. <laughs> uh, or yes, that's, that's exactly right. And so it's just this way of learning to uh, recognize the work of others. And that's something that's really hard for us to do in academic settings because normally it's about advancing our own work. Um, as opposed to recognizing and highlighting where you see excellence and, and allowing it to come forward and being advocates for that. So Jill, what are some uh, particular challenges that you have faced? Um, and tell me also a bit about establishing your own group that does something very similar to Logia Ridley. I'm interested when it's your turn again to hear what year you started your thing at, at your university because it sounds like it was all happening at the same time. So in 2016, uh, a friend of mine had the invitation to write a chapter about women in academia, in theological academia in Australia. They actually said uh, women in academia in the 21st, 21st century. And we're like, whoa, this is our part-time job, you know, like we're just doing it, whatever. So um, my friend asked me to help and then we asked someone to help. He ended up with a little team of four people writing this chapter. But we asked our own um, institution to give us statistics about women in our own um, institution, which had never, that, that information had never been gathered by anybody. So this is not just Ridley, this is the like, consortium we're in with 20-something um, colleges. And so after some um, work, we, we were given access to their stats where we found out what everybody now knows about percentages of women versus men in, in undergrad, in grad, in PhD and as supervisors. Mm. Um, it was absolutely amazing to find out this information um, and that, that subsequently been published as a chapter. Uh, but at around the same time, uh, Lynn Kohick was coming to Australia and Mike Bird and Brian Rosner, who are you know, bosses in our institution, um, 
you know, they knew Lynn and they said, oh, well, perhaps we can lure her to Ridley. And they said mm -hmm. to me, could I put on some kind of little symposium for a dozen people to meet Lynn? And I thought, you're joking me. A symposium with 12 people, you know, like this is the moment. So um, we gathered together. By this time, we had uh, three uh, women faculty at Ridley, which is they've only ever had one at a time, but, you know, they, they had three. So we've got this little team of three uh, women faculty and um, some students and some graduates who were, you know, people who are passionate about this stuff. And we put on our first uh, Women in Academia, Evangelical Women in Academia. The title was given to us by Mike and Brian. And um, so we just went with that. And we got people from all over Australia coming, which was very thrilling. It's not like the States where everybody does stuff. You know, it's, Australia's huge, like way bigger than Texas. That's a joke. And um, <laughs> you know, it costs so much to travel. Um, but, you know, people came from everywhere. And uh, that was in... 2017, the first one, then 18, 19. Yeah, we mm. didn't have one this year. We didn't plan to have one this year. Glory to us, right? Because we couldn't have had it anyway. Um, so we were skipping this year because ISBL was going to be in Australia. That was cancelled as well. But we hadn't mm. put in any work. Uh, next year, we've got Lucy Peppiot coming. Mm. We had Paula Gooder, then Lucy Peppiot coming next time. And we had Katja Covrette as well. Um, so this kind of, you know, started to unroll. Um, so challenges for us are all the things that Krista's outlined, um, but also probably what Krista's now facing in little New Zealand, we're in little Australia, uh, that tons of great materials, even though it's not as much as from men, um, are coming from America. You can get white women from America, you can get um, black women, you get women of colour, you can, and you know, by men as well. Tremendous diversity. But in Australia, we have so few voices and so few publications. So one of my issues as well as trying to do stuff for women and diversity is to try and get women's voices. So um, we have a writing group. We have, we have an on-campus writing group people come to. And we also have a um, virtual writing group that people all over Australia are part of. It's run by another faculty member. Uh, we have a preaching network. We've got three three faculty members, right? One runs, runs the virtual group, one runs the preaching network, and you know, I I'm, I'm mostly look after the um, conference. Um, but we have these different prongs of, of things trying to help women, um, whether they want to practically be a preacher, whether they want to be writing, and we've diversified too. We don't care if it's a blog or whatever it is. You know, academic writing, blogs, as long as you're writing, we, we want to work together. Um, so we have these different prongs of things that we're doing to work together to try and build up, you know, women's voices, uh, Australian women's voices. And, and the last thing that we're doing right now is um, publishing a book um, mm. from our last conference of 20 Australian women scholars in the evangelical tradition um, mm. coming out at the end of the year. Uh, so there, there, there have been books um, certainly of Australian voices and, and even probably some women's, I don't know actually if there have been women-only books, but certainly in the evangelical tradition you can't get a book of women-only voices. Uh, so it's very exciting for us. Yeah, yeah it that's, is. That, that's to use, you know, like we're hoping to be used in colleges, like when they say, there are no women in my bibliography. You say, well, in our book there's probably a chapter for you. There's theology, yeah. there's biblical studies, there's practical stuff. Yeah. That's fantastic. I, Hearing both of you talk, it reminds me of 
um, the, the original meaning of the word to encourage just etym etymologically is to give courage. And I just love that because some, we think colloquially to encourage someone is to make them feel better or to flatter them or to say something nice to them, but to encourage convey something so much deeper to, to give courage to someone. And these initiatives that you all are taking part in, there are ways that you give courage to women that I just love. And it's, it's a way of saying, I see you, I see your gifts. Um, it's not just you're a woman in this kind of abstract general sense. Um, it's a way of saying you are a woman, but you are also you and you also have these gifts and I can see them and I want to fan them into flame and I want to encourage you and provide opportunities for you to develop those gifts. And you know what, as you do, you benefit the academy, you benefit the church, you bring something to the table. And uh, so it's, it's a win-win all the way around. So thank you for what you're doing for women um, and the ways that you're encouraging, ways that you're encouraging me uh, it was funny after I had invited both of you, I thought, oh, this is interesting because all three of us have done initiatives for women in, in our various contexts. And I um, started the Society for Women in Scholarship at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. And I was thinking as you were talking, I can't even remember. I think it was about 2016, probably the very beginning of that year when the idea was birthed. Uh, I think it launched in 2016. I could be wrong about that, but it was all about the same time. And I think that's actually how Jill and I met um, just because of that common interest. And then when I heard about what was going on at St. Andrews, it was just all the more encouraging because you were seeing this spread and seeing other women coming up with very similar initiatives just on their own terms. And, uh, and that's an encouragement in and of itself. Um, so thank you for your work. Now, I am wondering um, how you would advise a woman. We've, we've already talked about, Krista mentioned, the job market is particularly difficult. <laughs> it was difficult before COVID, and now it's even more difficult. Um, and say you have a woman that you know, she's in your church or she's a student, and she's very clearly gifted academically, and she loves everything nerd. <laughs> and she really has um, just a, a remarkable capacity but her life situation, let's say maybe it just because of family responsibilities, ministry responsibilities, or just other, other conditions that um, make it very difficult for her to jump in and pursue traditional PhDs uh, or finding ways into the academy that are more of the average paths in. Uh, what would you what would you say to her and, and how would you encourage her? Um, what opportunities would you maybe uh, lay before her as possibilities? Great question, Amber. I think that's just such a good practical one to be asking. Um, I've got women in my current class that just wrapped yesterday who I feel fit that bill. Um, so one, I put in their course feedback, have you considered graduate school? <laughs> Um, because I actually still think regardless of whether or not they might be a professor one day um, to get more education is always a boon uh, just mm -hmm. to be equipped to be more critical thinking um, knowing that and there was that terrible phrase that uh, women have to be twice as educated to be seen as half as qualified as a man 
I don't, I don't know if it's that bad here. Um, in some places I've been, it is. Uh, so even if she's wanting to go into pastoral ministry, uh, which there's many more jobs in that, in that capacity, although that is also still really struggling in light of COVID, um, Mm -hmm. then I still think education, um, is the way to go there. And then even if it's not to be on paid staff at a church somewhere, I still see the benefit of education. Now, I'm now speaking as a New Zealander, not as an American, because in America, your debt is going to go through the roof, uh, Mm -hmm. most likely. But I'm finding here, and when I was in the UK, for those that are residents in those areas, education is actually much more affordable. So there is a real question on the cost benefit. Um, If someone doesn't have a very clear calling into academia and they're considering dropping 30,000 pounds, you know, a year (laughs) to go do a doctorate, there is a question of wisdom there. Mm. But if we're talking about, I feel like I'm good at this and I could start doing an online uh, program or a distance program. So I'm pretty sure Ridley has some good online programs. I know Carrie, even though um, we have some, yeah, we have our undergrad programs. We also have a master's degree that would be mm-hmm. online. Aberdeen has some great distance programs. So that's still going to be expensive, but you could potentially do it part-time and work while you're going through that. So there are lots of different options. And I think actually that will be one of the benefits of COVID is people seeing how much of our education we can do online. Granted, we still need face-to-face. There is something really valuable in that. I think that's also been underscored. But there's, I think people have had to be creative. And so I think that could actually have some positive outworking um, educationally. So for, for a woman who is clearly gifted, um, I'm, I'm always going to say get more education. Now, if she can't afford it or doesn't have time for it, then I want to say get a reading buddy. Mm-hmm. work through a course outline. Uh, another thing we have here at Carrie is called lifelong learning. So that's for adults who just want to not get credit for something, but like I, I'm re- leading a group right now. It's called a theology reading group. So we're working through Catherine Tanner's book, um, her first systematic or her sy- brief systematic theology, Sarah Coakley's first volume of her systematics, and then Oliver mm-hmm. Crisp's uh, volume in analytic systematic theology. So those three books we're working through over eight months time. So I mean, you have the, the tools at your disposal, whether or not you have something you can put on your wall that says you got that degree, don't, that shouldn't be the motivator unless you're trying to be a professor because then you have to have the paper on your wall. <laughs> right. But, but is that the only way that theological education is fruitful? Um, I just did an interview with Charles Hewlett, who is the, the Baptist Union president for our 240 Baptist churches. And on that interview with him, I'm exhorting pastors and people who are not pastors to get theologically educated. Mm -hmm. And I'm not thinking many or any of them are meant to be professors necessarily. So Mm -hmm. to me, I'm, I'm, I'm with the Bereans, you know, like they, they tested what Paul said and he commends them for that. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that's what we need to be encouraging, which also may be a bit of a flattening of our expertise mentality, which again, coming from America. We love our experts. Um, I think we need to get off some of our pedestals there. Um, and yeah, let's, let's educate more people. Let's have more people involved in these conversations um, and, and get women, uh, yeah, educated to be in those conversations uh, alongside everyone else. Now, the stuff that Chris is saying I think is so true. You know, I always write on any essay, have you thought of blogging this? You know, 
wow, you, you could go on to further study, you know, please talk to me. Or if they're obviously a theologian or something, you know, talk to Scott or, or somebody, Brian, you know, whatever. Um, another thing I always say to people is to pray. When I, when I wanted to train as a spiritual director, uh, the training was always on Wednesday and it was while I was doing my MDiv and I always had lectures on Wednesday and I just prayed that sometime God would open the door and then eventually I didn't have any lectures on Wednesday. I thought, it's my day. And it was I, I studied uh, for um, three years in that first course and I was able to attend every training event. I never had a clash. Like this was just God's time. And then I did another course where I did the Masters in Spiritual Direction. And again, I was able to attend every, every event. Whereas for those three or four years where I was trying to begin, it just wasn't the time. So I always yeah. say to people, I, I also recruit for Hebrew very, very actively because uh, I teach Hebrew. And I'm like, people are like, oh, I'd love to do that one day. I say, just pray about it. You know, God will open the door. Uh, I'm not putting any pressure on you. You know, you just pray and if God wants you to do it, you know, the door will open. And I think that's such a good attitude for PhD as well, uh, as Krista says, and even more in our, in our smaller countries. Like the jobs for any, any academic in evangelical academia are so tiny. You know, mm. like you might live your whole life and never see one in your field. Mm. Um, so I say to people again, you know, just pray and if God opens that door, good. But if not... Is he calling you to do it as we've all been saying, you know, for enrichment, for the church? Uh, pray about the money. Pray about mm. your family situation. If you've got a husband, pray that he would be on side, you know. Um, pray about friends. You know, pray about the cost of the books uh, because it's so much fun then when God opens the door or gives you what you need. You're like, oh, this is God's time and God's place and God's mm. thing. And to give up, as Krista also said, the glory, like, mm. Maybe you'll never get the PhD because you can't afford to, you know, do the PhD or something. You could get a master's or whatever. Or maybe you get the PhD and you never get a job, which is the most typical outcome in Australia. Mm -hmm. You might even be able to get a, um, an adjunct job. You might not even be able to be a tutor. You know, there just may be no job for you in the academy. But if God has called you and you feel confident mm -hmm. that that's his doorway, then you think, oh, good. It's okay. You know, this, this is part of, like we're talking, building up the wisdom in the church and the skills, being a role model, being the woman who does actually know Greek or Hebrew, maybe not both, or mm. analytical theology or Kierkegaard. Mm. Uh, you're the go-to person for that stuff, which for any woman to think that woman is the one who knows, you know, Greek or Hebrew or analytical theology or Kierkegaard. Now, how fantastic compared with, I, you know, just women kind of crawl along under the surface um, mm. So, yeah, I, I think they're great, great strategies. Another thing I think is really important is to work with the churches. Like in Sunday school, they could be showing the women leaders instead of like Abraham. What about Abraham and Sarah? You know, what about mm. Deborah? What about Hulda? What about, you know, Priscilla? And also to be thinking more concretely about jobs for women, not just mm. part-time children's workers, which is a fantastic job, but not mm -hmm. every woman wants to be a part-time children's worker, they might need a full-time job or they may be called to preach or lead or whatever. Um, so opening up at the top end as well, that when a woman comes out with a, with a qualification, there's somewhere for her to go uh, to use that. Not everyone will get a job, but there really need to be more jobs than there are. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think what I am personally the most edified 
by in this conversation is just the reminder that it's God's time and God's place, and this is God's thing. And that just really is so true in my own journey with this. Um, I, I think we assume that life is linear, <laughs> that it's just, it moves about and is really predicted. I can tell you all the stops sort of way. Um, but life, it's funny, it's, it's not like that. And I think women's lives in particular are not necessarily this linear thing. Um, some of them are and some of them aren't. And many times we have loops and little twists and turns and, and we're tempted to think, oh, I'm set back because I took this loop <laughs> um, or because God led me down this path. But in reality, we find that God uses every bit of the enrichment that comes from those experiences and those opportunities and brings it back um, in ways that we couldn't have even conceived of. So walking through, I know even in my own experience with getting to PhD and getting through PhD and all of the typical questions. How am I going to do this time-wise? How am I going to do this financially? How am I going to do this with any sense of what's going to be after this, you know, and, and seeing time and time obstacle. And then, wow, I can't even tell you how many stories I have of God removing obstacles in ways that I didn't expect. Um, and so even coming to the end of this and reflecting on all of that process and thinking, wow, well, now we have a global pandemic <laughs> um, right as I'm finishing my last chapter. And I don't know what the future holds, but you know what? This is God's thing. Um, and so that might not look necessarily in the traditional way that I assume that it will work. It may. Uh, God might have a place or God might have another time or God might have another way. And uh, so I, I think being able to encourage one another that nonetheless, we remain faithful to what God has called us to do um, is a great way to, to strengthen one another and to help each other not grow weary. So I just want to thank you both for being here. This was uh, an honor to have this conversation with you. And uh, I hope our listeners, both our women and our men benefited from this um, and that it would be edifying for the church and enriching for the academy. So thank you both for being here. So it's great to be here. Thanks and, and fun to be all together in one, even if it's only a virtual space. Uh, that's been fantastic to be together and uh, to have the chance. Thanks very much, Amber. Yeah, I second that. Thank you so much. like more engagement of theology culture and discipleship from the two cities you can find us on facebook instagram or visit us at our website at the if you like the content that we put out here on the two cities podcast please rate and review us on apple podcasts spotify or wherever else you get your podcasts